Hello, welcome to Nonsense and Noise, a podcast about the queer pop culture slash media experience. I am your host, Nathan Cotto, and I'm doing mostly okay. I am going to be off work next week, so I might try and put out a couple episodes of the pod um, to kind of catch up for only delivering like two episodes in October. But other than that, I'm doing mostly okay. I went out with some friends last weekend for my friend's birthday party, and we did karaoke, and that was a lot of fun. So yeah, life is pretty mostly okay right now. Um, work is still contained for now, but now I'm also going back um, to the office, so that is a drive into New Jersey twice a week, which is not fun, but hey, this job pays the bills. So... There's a lot of video game news to catch up on, and yeah, just like pop culture stuff. So I just finished watching the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer, um, and I'm sorry to say that I'm like so not enthused about Spider-Man. Like it looks like they're trying to do Spider-Verse, but like with the villains only, which is cool, but also like, I don't know, we already had Into the Spider-Verse with the alternate Spider-Man, which I thought was, like, a better execution of it, and, like, the animation was gorgeous and everything, so I'm, like, I don't know, I would be cool with live-action Spider-Man maybe, like, chilling out for a little bit. Like I said in the last episode, we've had so many different iterations of Spider-Man, and I'm ready to be done with Spider-Man, so... That, that was that, and then also um, I saw Eternals the day that it came out, and that was, um, the more that I think about it, the more I really like the movie, so, like, we'll be getting, we'll be getting an episode on Eternals at some point. So that's, like, media stuff that I've been paying attention to. My, the media that I pay attention to is, like, very, very small, so, um... Oh, and then Cowboy Bebop, Cowboy Bebop dropped, um, so that's another thing that I am kind of interested in watching. I never watched the anime, so maybe I'll watch the anime after I watch the live action. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I kind of want to interact with that content. There's also uh, news that I think What We Do in the Shadows got renewed for two extra seasons, I think, so they're up to guaranteed for season five, but I think right now they are shooting season four or something, and I should probably check that show out too, because I've heard lots of good things about it. Oh, and then Squid Game got renewed for season two. I read the synopsis, because I like I don't think I could watch Squid Game, but I read the synopsis on Wikipedia, and it seems like an interesting show to kind of bring on for a season two, because I guess maybe it's just like stopping the Squid Game? I don't know. But anyways, your guess is as good as mine because, of course, this is coming from the person who thought that Squid Games was a weird marketing play for Splatoon, which I'm sure is a totally fine game. I don't want to dunk on it too hard because, you know, people people are are allowed to like what they like, and it seems like a cute, like, shooter game, whatever. But yeah, I'm still not over the fact that I, I thought Squid Game was weird marketing for Splatoon. But now moving into video game news, Shin Megami Tensei 5 dropped last Friday, and I've been playing it. I had my ass kicked by the first boss about, like, six times, because I forgot that Shin Megami Tensei is a game where you have to, like, grind and, like, get stronger and, like, actively invest time into leveling. Otherwise, you kind of can't progress any further, so I've got, like, almost eight 
and a half hours sunk into the game and I just beat the first boss. But that's been that's been ultimately really fun. It's been cool to see Shin Megami Tensei come to life in a 3D, more 3D environment. I played Shin Megami Tensei 4 Apocalypse on 3DS and that was like kind of 3D but also like not. And also like for whatever reason, the graphics always felt really crunchy on the 3DS with Shin Megami Tensei 4 Apocalypse. I never I didn't get to play Shin Megami Tensei 4. Um but yeah, it always seemed kind of crunchy, and these, the graphics for 5 seem pretty good. There's maybe, I think, like, when you open up the save screen, that's where I think it feels a little clunky, but I think that also might be intentional at this point. So, yeah, it's been, it's been fun so far, and I, now contrasting that to Pokemon, which is coming out this Friday, I am excited for it. I bought a copy already, or like I pre-ordered a copy. I'm playing Shining Pearl. Might stream that. I don't know. I feel like with the with the like games where you're leveling and stuff, it's hard to stream, just because like it's hard to engage the audience. Um, and tasks aren't quite as like small, so you can't really like achieve things easily on stream. It's kind of like, oh, like we're gonna spend the whole two hours like grinding for a gym or something. But who knows, maybe I'll play some more um, Shin Megami Tensei or Pokemon on stream. But yeah, those two games are coming out, or Shin Megami Tensei's out, and then probably by the time I drop this episode, Pokemon's gonna be out. Uh, Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker was supposed to come out, I think, this week, but I think it got pushed because of, like, the company wanting to avoid crunch and everything. People are upset about that, but people are also very excited for Endwalker. I played a little bit of Final Fantasy fourteen myself, and at least in my opinion, I thought it was, like, a cool balance between, like, it being fun and it being, like, a little bit boring, and that's mainly because I think um, my personal experience with MMOs has been, um, I played a lot of Ragnarok online growing up, and that, like, has a story, kind of, but also, like, you're very free to do what you want, and you can immediately party up with your friends right out the gate, whereas Final Fantasy, like, you have to clear a bunch of story to progress anything, which, you know, it's fine, um, there's no real judgment on that, like, I, I'm getting to the point where Final Fantasy is feeling more entertaining, but of course it is subscription-based, and I don't have the money to really, like, spend on a subscription-based video game, so yeah, I'm just not playing for now. I guess, like, maybe if they do, like, a sale or something, maybe I'll buy a subscription, buy some more time on it, but yeah, for now I'm, I'm kind of done, but I also, I don't know, like, there's a new job class coming out for Final Fantasy called Sage, and if if folks haven't seen the abilities video, I would highly recommend going to watch it. It is very cool. The character model and like the class weapons look really sick. It's super cool. So that's kind of like, I don't know. I, I know people are excited about it. The one that I'm actually excited about and that I will be trying later after I'm finished recording is in Valorant, there was a new agent dropped called Chamber, and he's a sentinel, and he, it looks like he's kind of, like, he's got some of the utility of Yoru with, like, being able to teleport around the map, and then, of course, your usual sentinel utility, which is intel gathering in a, in a specific territory, or in, like, controlling territory, and I'm really excited to try and start grinding to get him, because Valorant makes it so that you can't easily unlock new agents, which I guess makes sense, but also, like, kind of sad, because I want to try him immediately. But I will be playing with a friend later tonight, and 
working on games to try and unlock him. I'm excited for that. And yeah, so I think that wraps up video game news. It will soon be American Thanksgiving, so I hope everyone has a good Thanksgiving and everything and that people are able to enjoy time with their friends and or family. And if you have any relatives who are overly conservative, this is the year to tell them, you know, hey, get your fucking act together because this country is on constantly on the brink of collapse and people who are voting conservative are actively running our country into the ground because the Republican Party is a pile of garbage. The Democratic Party is not doing too much better either. I guess they're like, you know, passively trying to run the country into the ground, whereas the Republicans are like, this is supposed to be a place only for white people. And uh, obviously America is, like the United States is not that. So fight your family, be that relative at the Thanksgiving table, and stand up for for basic human rights. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, hope the food is good. Hope your turkey is not fucking dry as hell. And also don't deep fry your turkeys at home because you'll set a whole bunch of shit on fire. So with that, I'm going to take a break and then we will launch into the main segment of the show. All right, welcome back from the break. So let's dive into the main segment of the show, the the nonsense or the noise. You get to decide which one it is. So as I've mentioned before, a topic that was suggested that I cover is boys love media. And that actually has several different names depending on what East Asian country you are engaging with it through. So I think millennials and like older millennials will probably know it more as like yaoi or shonen ai but this is also known as bl or boys love and it's a genre of fiction originating in japan and it started in the 1970s as a sort of subgenre of shoujo which is mostly like manga oriented at young girls and young women so there's shonen ai which literally translates to boys love or like young boys love Tanbi, which is um, aestheticism, and then June. Um, and all these are, are sort of the same sort of genre. They are specifically marketed towards women, or mostly marketed towards women, and they feature these really like beautiful male characters in love with each other. And I think that is like a very important, like that's the important sort of like factor to keep in mind when you're thinking about boys love or shonen ai or whatever is that is it's sort of like um i mean not not all the characters are like gorgeous and beautiful but like it is very much like look at these beautiful men and they're in love with each other yaoi is another name for the genre it's actually a portmanteau of a phrase in japanese that is yamanashi ochinashi iminashi which means no climax no point and no meaning, and this is referring mostly to the sort of genre of porn without plot, affectionately known in fandom circles as PWP, porn without plot, porn what plot, whatever. Basically, just like there's there's no story really involved. It's really just like how can I smash these two characters together so they have sex and. PWP extends outside of boys love. It is like its own genre in fan fiction as well, but the meaning is still the same. It's porn what plot. 
porn porn without plot. As I mentioned before, this is all like mostly marketed towards women. So that's the Japanese genre. Then there's Dame, which is shown in I'm moving into China via Taiwan. And it is basically the Chinese reading of the Japanese kanji that is used for tambi. So it's it's the same sort of meaning, which is like aestheticism and indulging beauty. Once again, Dame is like oriented at women and yeah as i mentioned it came to china through taiwan's translations of shonen ai manga so that's sort of like what boys love content is and so as far as like what struggles the genre faces and everything so china obviously modern china faces a lot of difficulties because of just the way that modern China is. So in China, it's not necessarily a crime to be queer, but there are very strict regulations around what is considered pornography and illicit behavior and sort of inappropriate for the public eye. And so as a result, a lot of boys love media faces a lot of high risk of legal action in China due to showing this queerness, which can be considered inappropriate, and also the sort of like it being considered pornography. So some history here, back in 20. 11, there was a famous Danmei website that was shut down, and there were about 1,200 works on that website, and, you know, they're all gone now. And the founder was fined and jailed for 18 months. Seven years later, there was another Danmei author that was sentenced, who was sentenced to 10 years in prison for self-publishing a novel that sold over 7,000 copies. So there's precedence for a lot of just, like, harsh action that comes from the government, like if they find out what's going on. And I remember hearing a story on, I think, NPR about, you know, there are queer people in China. And for them, having this community to experience queer media with is important. And so it's it's really difficult to read and to hear about all these injustices happening overseas and people just not really being able to live their own lives and embrace their identity because of of the regulation. However, there is a lot of skirting of this regulation as well. There are several pieces of media, and by several I mean like probably about three that I'm going to talk about, um, have later episodes on with hopefully with some guests. But so a lot of the way that boys love media sort of flouts the censors in China is there's a lot of removal of overt queer romance but the subtext remains so basically like are they ever gonna kiss no are they explicitly in love no they might be like best friends and if you squint with your queer eye then you can really put together like oh hey these characters like Maybe in the original media, they're actually supposed to, like, be together. But due to government censorship, they can't. And it's actually really incredible how much authors and, like, filmmakers and everybody, like, are able to get away with by being like, nope, they're actually not queer, but, like, they're, like, best friends. They're, like, the best friends. They, like, hold hands and they're best friends. Do they kiss? No, because best friends don't do that, but they will hold hands. It's very funny to see sort of, like, what gets around the censors and everything and makes it to makes it out of China, and then people will latch onto that. And actually, interestingly enough, like, people will latch onto that, and then, of course, like, culture is this strange being that sort of moves across boundaries and and it's never 
one-way exchange for culture. So there are a few pieces of media that have made it outside of China. The culture comes to, let's say, the United States. People latch on to it, and people develop their own views and and ships. And then that culture actually moves its way back through the internet to China. And then people in China are like, oh, hey, like I also thought about this. And then you know you have the the websites that host fan fiction for these pieces of media and that's sort of like where queer Chinese folks are are able to find some level of solace and freedom to be themselves and express themselves how they want to. And I know that I heard recently, as I said before, I heard recently on NPR that there was another website I think recently was also taken down and that was a huge problem and China is thinking about maybe having people like register their screen names to like their actual ID, which of course is terrifying because then there's no anonymity and like anonymity on the internet has both its pros and cons, but in this particular case, like with trying to build a, a community of oppressed minorities, whether whether it be actual ethnic minorities in China, yes, there are ethnic minorities in China, or a queer minority, like, having your real-life identity tied to that is very, very scary, because then, you know, what's to stop people online from being able to dox you immediately, right? Because there's nothing really that secret or hidden on the internet anymore nowadays. So, yeah, there's still a lot going on in China in terms of, like, trying to have this haven for that media and for the people who consume that media and sort of like trying to exist without drawing the attention of the government and incurring legal action. So that's China. Japan, obviously not quite as much of a struggle there. Japanese government censorship is nowhere near the level of China, so there's not really like the same level of persecution for people consuming shonenai but it's still not viewed in a positive light. I know that there's some, like, you know, for example, I follow some Japanese gay men on Twitter, and there is that subculture, but I do know that, like, in, all, like, also in, in mainstream Japanese culture, it's, like, still very conservative, so, like, you're not gonna get arrested for being gay, but, like, it's still, there's a lot of homophobia in this, in Japanese society, so, yeah, just, like, queerness in in the countries where boys love originated is still still trying to find its footing and find foundation and and hopefully will be able to flap its wing wow what am i doing it's in its fledgling stages and hopefully one day in the future uh, hopefully soon we'll be able to see you know our queer siblings in china and japan be able to exist without persecution that would be pretty darn pretty darn great as well as you know other other countries where being queer is is actually still a crime in japan and china it's not a crime anymore but it's just not really socially acceptable okay so now of course as i mentioned before culture is this sort of amorphous being that crosses boundaries and and participates in in sort of exchange of ideas and everything so boys love 
in America, there have been several popular Chinese boys love shows that have been imported via Netflix. There's Mo Dao Zhu Shi or Chen uh, Qing Ding or The Untamed. Mo Dao Zhu Shi is also known as MDZS, and it's a story about these two guys who it's an elaborate murder mystery on one hand, but also like it's the story of these two young. The word that they use is cultivators, but they're it's basically disciples of a Taoist school of magic, which they call, which roughly translates to cultivation or spiritual cultivation. It's the story of their friendship, them meeting and then growing up together. And sort of the trials and tribulations of growing up, and one of them, in order to still like remain powerful in a way, turns to unorthodox sources for his power, and that draws a lot of ire. So, I, and that's kind of the most that I can give away without really spoilers, and even that part is kind of a spoiler. So that is on Netflix under the Untamed. There's also another piece of media on Netflix called Heaven's Official Blessing or Tianguan Sifu. It's the same author as Mo Dao Zhu Shi, and that one I actually haven't watched yet. It's on my list, but I know like I've heard multiple people have like ringing endorsements, and actually with Tianguan It's it actually like is overtly queer from what I've heard, so that's interesting. I think probably that particular show was developed specifically for Netflix, so it's possible that they didn't have to really be as careful with the Chinese censors there. But for the Untamed, that one was produced in China for a Chinese audience, so all queer subtext has been fully removed. It's like the ending. Actually, no. I'm not gonna say. I'm not gonna say that. I'm not gonna talk about the ending. But like, you could, as I said before, you couldn't squint with your gay eye, and like, there's a lot happening. It's a little bit difficult, actually. It's a. It's more challenging to to find the queer subtext in the Untamed, but um, it's it's there. And then another piece of media that has been imported through Netflix is the Inyang Master Dreams of Eternity or Xinyazi. Which this actually like Inyang Master comes from the Japanese, which the term in Japanese is Onmyoji, which some folks may recognize as a mobile game, and all of that is based on a series of Japanese novels written about the sort of like occult sort of school of magic called Onmyodo. Or the way of Yin and Yang, and so Tianyaji was made in China for Chinese audiences. But like, this is actually probably at least for me, since I've seen it, I've seen it like four times. The one of the most like overt levels of subtext. Like people can probably see the, like the two main characters just as like best friends, but like what they go through and everything is it's very gay. At least for me, I'm just like yeah, they're they're gay, and I've watched it with a couple other friends, and both of them are just like these men are in love with each other, and I'm like yeah, I know. So yeah, Tianyaji or、uh, In Young Masters Dream In In Young Master Dreams of Eternity. That one's a fun one. The Graphics are incredible. I actually only watched the movie because I saw a gift set on Tumblr of a couple scenes, and I was like, "This movie looks really pretty." And I didn't realize how long of a movie it was, so I was up until like 4 a.m. on a Saturday night or something one one weekend watching it because I was just curious. And I obviously really like the movie a lot, so it, to the point where I've watched it like literally four times and. I might watch it a fifth time. I know I have one of my friends who I've did one of my watchthroughs of this movie with, and I'm kind of. 
bring him on and we're going to talk about it in the future. So, and of course, you know, this is, this is not homegrown U.S. culture that is like being made in the States. All, both, or sorry, not both. All three of these examples that I gave on Netflix, these are from another country. And so these, these pieces of media have different ideas of like, of romance and then also of like what masculinity looks like. In an earlier episode of the pod, I mentioned the concept of Wen, which is soft and cultured and very refined. And that's sort of the sort of like masculine export that Asia has a lot of. So like this, this Wen masculinity like comes across in a lot of, let's say like how K-pop boy bands look, let's say BTS. None of the BTS stars are masculine by Western standards. They have good bone structure, but they are not, they do not have stubble. They do not aim for like hard angular features. They're not muscular, like overly muscular. They are very slender and like they are beautiful and they're, you know, like they're, they're not the Western standard of masculinity. And so like that also, that when masculinity is also present in a lot of these boys love exports from China to the US. And so like, I think in Tianji it's a little bit different because like the director is a little bit more modern and I think it takes a little bit more liberties because this is essentially like a Japanese story that they sort of adapted into Chinese, but even so, like, the characters, when they're not in their, like, ceremonial garb, like, the men have long flowing hair, and yeah, they just, they look very wise and scholarly and very cultured, and fun fact about the hair, obviously it's a wig. My mom watched a lot of Chinese, like, film when I was growing up, and so I was exposed to this sort of wind masculinity very, very early on. And one thing that was always wild to me was the hair because I, you know, as a young kid, I didn't know what a wig was. So I was just like, wow, these men like grow their hair out so long and that's so wild. Like it just looks interesting. And then of course, now that like I've, I'm grown up, you look at the hair patterns for a lot of these like Chinese pieces of, of media where it's like set in in the past and everything. The main tip off for me was just like sideburns don't grow like that. People's sideburns don't grow like that. They don't grow that long and, and everything. And if so, we have a problem. Or not we have a problem, but like it's just not the norm. So yeah, those fun fact those are wigs. Yeah, all of the like unfortunately the Western standards for masculinity and beauty have made their way around the world so a lot of you know sure china or korea or whatever other asian country might not export a lot of like traditionally masculine actors or singers or whatever but there are still people who exist who like fit the more western stereotype of masculinity so i mean even the actor like both of the actors in tinyati like they both of them out of costume like are very traditionally like masculine by western standards so yeah like all of this to say obviously there's no one way to be a man like masculinity is a social construct and truly you do you identity is hard but i there's no one way to be a man so that is like the concept of masculinity in terms of like how it's different from like western queer media and the other thing that's that's it i mean like just to give some more examples like 
I'm just thinking about my ships that I have from popular media, so like from Psych, Sean and Lasseter, like from Teen Wolf, Derek and Styles, uh, from the game Overwatch, Anzo and Cole, and then there's that one really popular ship from Fox 911. We're getting into shows that I don't watch any, that I'm not familiar with. Um, there's like this this gay ship from Fox 911, Fox's 911, which like unfortunately is probably not going to happen. There's Dean and Castiel from Supernatural, which is like a meme in itself because that ship resurrected in full force last year. And that was a wild week. Wow. And then of course in Good Omens, there's Crowley and Aziraphale, etc. etc. Like there all this to say that a lot of the queer relationships that's exported in these pieces of media, they're very different. I would say that Tsunyaji is like maybe the only one of the three that I mentioned. I don't know about Heaven's Official Blessing just because I haven't watched it yet, but like Tsunyaji is very similar in terms of like the subtext that happens and you're just like, oh, like it shows that these characters care about each other a lot. Obviously with Tsunyaji, since it had to go past censors, they couldn't explicitly be like, I'm in love with you. So they're just really, 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 really good friends. And I think because a lot of these pieces of media can't, they have to be careful. Um, I mentioned subtext earlier, but I do feel like a lot of these pieces of media from China actually have to, they, they rely solely on subtext. And I think as a result, sometimes it can build a richer story. I'm trying to think about other like pieces of US media where there's explicitly like a gay relationship or like queer relationships. And of course I'm doing the thing where like, someone gives you a topic and you're just like, I have forgotten everything I know about that topic. Like, for example, someone says, what's your favorite fruit? And it's just like, I have forgotten the name of every single fruit ever. I do not know what a fruit is. I'm sure it'll come to me at some point. Like, I mean, some of the media that I've watched, like that I mentioned before, like Teen Wolf has queer relationships, Supernatural has queer relationships, Glee had queer relationships, and sure there's like some level of subtext, but I don't know, it's different, and it feel it just feels different from like the subtext that is put in for for Chinese media. Oh, and there's, what was that series called? Shadowhunters, I think, with Magnus, Bane, and like the other dude and they were together they're like in an off and on relationship i don't know it's like the queer queer relationships in western media are either like they are established already or like the characters suffer for the relationship and it's kind of i don't know it's all kind of just like out there and there's never never really or at least not that i can remember at this point in time of course like subtext that points to these characters potentially like falling together and i think a lot of the at least a lot of the ships that I named earlier, like, so for example, with Sean and Lassiter from Psych, that subtext was there very, very heavily, like, in season three, which I think is, for me, is, like, my favorite season, and I think the series went downhill after that. But, like, when the subtext is done really well, then I think it can lead to, like, a lot of feelings of reward for the fandom and, and for, like, especially for the characters to, like, you know, basically you're just resolving tension and that always makes the audience, can make the audience feel good. It's the same reason why I think like so many people were into Derek and Styles and Teen Wolf, even though we had other like canonically queer characters. Like Danny, unfortunately, was just like, 
written off for, for really no good reason. And then I know in the later seasons there were still queer characters, but I don't know, it's just like we have yet, or at least I, I from what I remember, I don't know of any shows that center like a queer protag other than let's say like Netflix's Q-Force, which I heard is like, ugh just a time to behold because it's not not because it's good it's because like it's i think what my friend said was like the first two episodes are like someone who is super like straight basically taking every single gay stereotype and cramming it into those first two episodes and that's just painful and i don't really want to watch that so yeah they're basically you know when it when you're when you're forced to deal in subtext only the the final result ends up being a little bit different and now, you know, moving into an even, like, more specific intersection, there's the relationship to queer Asian America and, you know, how this can affect queer Asian America. So, like, there, there are pros and cons, obviously. The number one positive thing for me is, like, this shows and, like, other, other queer Asian media can basically show and help people define a separate queer identity from white queerness because so just speaking from my own experience with being a gay man in the u.s like there's a very much like there sure there's no one way to be like a gay man but like i do feel like white gay men in let's say specifically in new york new york city even more specifically, there is sort of one kind of cookie cutter mold for how they are. They are very superficial, very body focused. They go to Fire Island all like every summer. They're catty, they're superficial, they're racist without knowing that they're racist. And yeah, it's like this very insular culture. And so a lot of, maybe not a lot of, but like the queer... Asian American stars that I know, for example, like Joel Kim Booster or Bone Yang or Conrad Rigamora, like Joel Kim Booster recently made a movie about Fire Island and it's supposed to be based on Pride and Prejudice, but it's on Fire Island and it's supposed to be talking about the Fire Island experience. And I'm just like, I don't know, like if I wanted to go somewhere to be catty and like have sex that just sounds like a straight person's high school experience and i just i don't i'm not interested in that like i would be interested in going to fire island to see what it is for like once but like i also know that it will probably make me feel terrible just because of how like the white gay experience is so like it's like all of this can contribute to like all of this being different forms of queer media and different queer stories, I think, can help to help us define a completely different queer identity from from white queerness. And I think that's important because, unfortunately, like, white people, especially in America, like, unless you are direct, like, unless you are first generation or, like, a direct, like, child of an immigrant, like, there's not a lot of like cultural mainstays that you retain and so as a result you just kind of join this homogenization of like whiteness and it just like there's no real culture and and so there's none of like the traditions and everything and i think that sometimes the traditions from people of color like 
can clash with concepts that are put forward by white queer America. Like I think I I have a friend who talks to me fairly regularly about the concept of found family and how for them it isn't really like I don't know found family is important but also like there's something very special as well about biological family not saying that it's the be-all end-all if your biological family is toxic as hell like definitely don't even bother like sticking with them but like it's like for some people connection to biological family is important and so for a lot of the queer Americans to say like oh if you need to you can cast off your biological family and you'll have found family and that's like much more important like for some people it's like no it's not much more important like they're they're the same like I I would say I have certain friends who I would consider sure my found family but like I still have that connection to my biological family and the traditions that we have and that I think is very unique and different from the white queer experience just because like I feel like white people are so anxious sometimes to to cast off their familial connections and for people of color it's very much like this is my survival like my lifeline it's one of the first connections that we have in life and regardless of how shitty our parents may treat us sometimes like you know I think you know, as long, as long as it's not, like, terrible abuse and everything, like, it, this is, this is getting really sticky, and I'm trying to find my way out of it, but basically, like, family is a really important connection for people of color in America, and so it's very hard to cast that off to sort of, like, embrace your queer identity, and so, you know, for some people, they, they're forced to because they've been disowned by their families, and for some of us who are, who haven't been forced to make that choice between family and identity, like, it is sometimes, like, it is this different perspective from what sort of, like, a white queer identity can look like. And of course, you know, in addition to developing queer identities and stuff with the me from, from the media, like, you know, it's always important to have rep representation and stories about humanity and just, like, different perspectives that can be presented for, for other people to consider. And, of course, you know, with there are other other cons that can come about from the presence of like these these different stories in 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 america i brought up earlier the concept of when masculinity the soft and cultured and refined masculinity that is both a good thing and also there are some people who will see this media and say like oh you know asian american men are exactly what i thought they were they are feminine and they are willowy and they are foreign and like it's not you know they're other and it's very just like you know one piece of media and one genre of media cannot encompass the monolith that is Asian American masculinity, like those are two huge monoliths to boil down to literally just one genre of media where like men just happen to be portrayed in a certain way. And hopefully other depictions of Asian American men can, or, or just Asian men in general can change this. So I, I mean, like I just did a whole series on Shang-Chi and like that is presenting, you know, an Asian American man in a specific way and his conflict with his father and you know both Simu Liu and Tony Leung are very like they're they're 
they're huge figures now, or maybe not huge for Simu, but, like, Tony Leung is, like, a huge figure in cinema, and obviously, like, a lot of people left Shang-Chi really actually liking him. Congrats on discovering him, but also, like, a lot of people have known about Tony Leung for a long time. So, like, I don't know, like, it's... All of this to say, like, for represent representation is obviously important just because, like, no one person or no one story or no one piece of media or no one genre can, like, encompass all of the experiences from, you know, a certain group of people. So, yeah, that is it for the main topic of the history of boys love and the next few episodes we will be getting a little bit further into the actual some of the pieces of media that i mentioned earlier so i'm going to take a break and then we'll come back with the rest of the show all right welcome back from the break and it's time for the final part of the show so as usual i to plug the patreon as a reminder, I'm doing this all independently, all myself, and there are obviously some costs involved with hosting audio on the internet, and the Patreon is my way to try and help offset those costs, and then hopefully in the future, if we get enough traction, then I can use Patreon to have somebody help me edit my stuff, and that would be really wonderful, so then I don't have to worry about doing all the editing myself. But so Patreon, there are a couple different tiers available. Tier 1 uh, gets you a shout-out, Tier 2 gets you early access to the podcast episode and tier three allows you to propose topic ideas which can then be covered so as a sort of example of a tier three in action this whole topic of boys love is actually proposed by someone who subscribed at a tier three so if you have ideas that you would like to hear talked about you know and considered from a queer and or person of color experience feel free to subscribe at a tier three and and we can hash it out and also you know maybe i can get some guests on and we can we can actually talk about the topic so that's the patreon i am also currently right now i am working actively on shin megami tensei 5 and those are not really stream-friendly games, I feel. Like, they kind of are just because, like, stuff is happening, but with the way that I play those games, it's actually really not fun to watch on stream. But I'm sure there will be games in the future that I will be streaming, so if you would like to come by and watch me play video games, sometimes poorly, feel free to give me a follow on Twitch at twitch.tv slash katonakato. K-A-H-T-O-N-O-T-K-A-Y-T-O. It's the same handle as my Instagram and Twitter. Just uh, if you like what you're hearing and you want to get more of me, feel free to follow me at those locations as well on Instagram and Twitter. Same username slash handle, Kato not Kato, K-A-H-T-O-N-O-T-K-A-Y-T-O. And with that, that's about it. Thanks for tuning in and hope to see you next time. Bye.